0: so glad you're here today. Uh, John chapter 8 is our text. If you have your Bible on your phone or in your hand um, in print, we invite you to go ahead and open it up. We're going to study God's Word today. My name is Danny. I'm pastor here at Great Hills, and we're delighted that you're here. Uh, Grateful to God for the rain. I know it keeps Baptists away. I don't know about other churches, but it does keep some Baptists out of church, but I'm so grateful for the rain. Can you just say, thank you, Lord, for the rain? I'm so grateful for it. We need it. Well, we're really glad that you're here, and thank you, uh, Corey, for leading us in worship. Brother Terry is out uh, for a few days with his wife, uh, Debbie. Looks like they're having a great time in the Big Apple there in New York City. I'm sure they're thinking about us this morning, as y'all are there, but we're delighted uh, that they're having a good time. So glad that you are here today. If you're new at Great Hills, and I know many of you are, many of you are going through our new members class, uh, Discover Great Hills, that's your next step in your progression and your spiritual walk and we're delighted that you're doing that but many of you maybe for the first time are tuning us in online or maybe you're here for the first time we welcome you we're very glad that you're here in your bulletin if you would take a moment fill out that get to know you registration card that'd be fantastic you can drop that in the offering plate be so good All right, so John chapter eight, I love this passage of scripture and uh, verses one through, really verses one through 12 is what we're gonna look at today. It's a part of a series of messages we're preaching here at Great Hills called For the One, where Jesus Christ engages people in the New Testament. When you read his biographies, you notice notice some things about the Lord. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna study those salient features or characteristics of Christ and seek by the power of his spirit to apply those principles uh, to us uh, today. And just to re, kind of summarize where we are as a church, our mission as a church is really to get the gospel out to as many people as we can, so they can come to know the Lord that has been so very good to us. That really is our mission. Our vision at Great Hills is discipleship, to see people not only come to the Lord, Uh, as a baby is born into this world, but that that baby is nurtured and fed and clothed and taken care of. And that's what we wanna do with new believers in Christ. We wanna help you grow, We wanna help you mature in your walk with the Lord. So that's our vision. Our values as a church, there are five key core values. And you'll see these here at Great Hills and you're gonna see some of these in our text today. Number one is we wanna be truthful to God and we wanna honor him by preaching his word. We wanna teach and preach the Word of God publicly in our small groups, and our connect groups. And so the Bible, the scripture has a prominent, preeminent place at Great Hills. It's not just a dusty old book, you know, wipe the dust off. No, it's vital, it's living. And and we wanna be truthful to it and preach it. We also wanna build families at Great Hills. Uh, Many of you are parents and you have children. You still have children in your home. God bless you, we wanna come alongside you and help you as you raise your, your kids. We also want to reach people, and that is such a passion of ours at our church. We want to do what Jesus did. We want to mimic him and follow his example in loving people and interacting with people, dialoguing with people. Uh, People are not our enemy. We have an enemy. That's the devil, but people aren't our enemy. We love people. We want to minister to people. Another core value of our church is prayer, to spend time in prayer, corporate prayer, uh, private prayer, prayer in our small groups. And then finally, to be unified as a church. Uh, we all have differences, all have different personalities and preferences and so forth, but we want to bring that to the cross of Jesus. We want to lay those preferences down and our pride down, and we want to rally around one another in a family. So that's who we are as a church. And I just want to share these periodically because I know every Sunday we have uh, many people for the very first time. How do we do this? What is the pathway and how we accomplish this? Three things. Worship God, make disciples, and go after people, both in our city and in the cities all over this world. So let me, let me practice one of those core values right now. Let me just ask you to bow your heads and pray with me before we get into the, into the Scriptures today. Would you just bow with me for a moment in prayer and just ask God, as Corey admonished us a moment ago, just ask the Lord to speak to us. What does he want to say to us? So, Father, we do thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for corporate prayer. Thank you for this is a time that we as a church can come into your presence, God. And we do this privately, personally, and we're very grateful for it. Lord, there is something very dynamic and it's something that just builds life and community within a church. When we take the time to pray, God, as we talk to you and as you speak to us in a moment through your word, prepare our hearts, oh God. Cultivate the soil of our souls. Lord, weed out any roots of bitterness and pride or prejudice or anger, God, would you, Holy Spirit, just remove that out of our lives, and may we now be in a position to receive the Word of God. Lord, we confess our sins to you. Lord, we need your forgiveness. We need a special touch from you, God. We need you. Church needs you. Our nation needs you. Our world needs you. And so, Lord, we come to you today in prayer in Jesus' name telling you how much we love you, telling you as a church what you already know, God, that you are awesome, that you are our creator, you are our provider. You're the one that speaks to us and encourages us. And so, Lord, we love you today. We want you to know, God, that you are our all. You are enough. You are awesome. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you for praying with me. So John chapter 8, I understand the arguments I've read them, and there's a lot of them. Many people believe this should never be in the Bible. It's not mentioned in some of the older, ancient Greek manuscripts, this whole pericope. Pericope, by the way, is a big fancy word in, in, that we learned in seminaries. Just had to throw it out there to you, let you learn with me. It may appear, young people, on your ACT, SAT exam. You never know, so I'm here to help you. Or your GRE exam, whatever. So anyhow, pericope is a paragraph. It's a unit of Scripture that, that's contained within the whole And 1 through 11 is not in many manuscripts. However, it is in other manuscripts. And I'm one of those who believe that it is part of God's Word. We need to understand it. We need to read it. Men like Augustine, the great early church father, said absolutely. Jerome and others. And so I, I know this happened. I just know it in my heart. It's just like Jesus for this event to transpire in his life. And so as we read this text, I want you to notice some things with me. Number one, there's going to be some some real interaction with Jesus with people. But f- before that happens, he is so walking in the Father's will. Whatever Jesus does, he tells us in John five nineteen. he says, whatever I do, I'm only doing what I see the Father doing and what he is asking me to do. Now, wouldn't that be awesome for all of us to be able to say that, that we're so in tune with God that whatever God asks us to do, the person he wants us to speak to, we speak to him. The people in the hospital he wants us to visit, we go visit to him. The person here on the side of the road who needs maybe just a word of encouragement, we stop. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Well, Jesus said in John 5, 19, whatever he wants me to do, I'm available, I'm going to do it. You notice that about him. Number two, you notice that he loved people. Jesus loved people, all people. Uh, he loved the Gentile as, as much as he loved the Jew. He loved the Samaritan. He loved people. And Jesus went out of his way to minister to people, to help people. But something very interesting, too, about Christ, and you'll especially see this, Jesus, he comforted those who were afflicted, and he afflicted those who were comfortable. He had this way about him. He was was very kind towards sinners, and he was really harsh toward mean religious people. And you see this sprinkled throughout the New Testament. He's very kind towards sinners, very gracious and kind. But the people who were so resistant and recalcitrant and obstinate toward him and his message, the religious aristocracy, if you will, the religious elite, they're called the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And whenever they encounter Jesus, they're always wanting to argue with him. They're always wanting to debate some fine point of theology. Or they're, they're really trying to catch him. In an, aha, gotcha, gotcha moment. But that's such a, an exercise in futility because how do you get the one who created you? How do you catch in a, you know, in a conundrum the, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you think they'd learn their lesson, but they don't, and here it is again. And all these dynamics you're going to see manifested in John 8, 1 through 12. So here, let's read it. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I can never read that scripture without thinking about, being in Jerusalem, seeing the Mount of Olives there on the eastern slope. Now, early in the morning, when, church, did he do this? Say it again. Man, Jesus was a morning person. All right. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. This would be the temple precinct. This would be the area where the common people would just come and and hear him. And all the people came to him, it says. And he sat down... And taught them. Many times when Jesus is teaching and preaching, he sat down. So don't be too harsh or judgmental on these pastors. You see them sitting down, like, why aren't you standing up and preach the word? Well, Jesus sat down. He sat down and he taught the people. I wonder if he sat down because he was going to be teaching for a long time. I, I'm wrong. Just, just, just a thought, you know. He's sitting down. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, here they come. Woo. I mean, like a locomotive here out of Hades. Here they come. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him. Now, please, please underscore this. Verse 6 really is the linchpin. It really unlocks uh, hermeneutically. It really under, helps us understand. It unfolds for us this passage of Scripture. Verse 6, this was a charade. This was a, a moment where the religious leaders are bringing to this woman. That th- This woman is inconsequential to them. They could care less about her. Much like that first century culture, women were second-class citizens. Until Jesus Christ comes and he goes, you got it all wrong, they are on the same plane and equal with mankind. Jesus, he said that, he believed that. Jesus did more for women than any other person in the world. We forget that sometimes in our culture. We accept that men and women are ontologically, in the essence, they are the same, and they are, and the person who brought that to light in the first century was Jesus Christ. And so these people, they could care less who she is. She's a woman of the night. She's an adulterer. You don't see her name. You don't see any background, no history. They don't care because the ploy here is to gotcha, gotcha, Jesus. So they tested him that they might have something of which to accuse him. And Jesus did this. He was doing this. He's teaching the people. They're violently interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees and their entourage, which I think included some young aspiring theologians. So it'd be just like us here, me teaching and preaching and a coterie, a group of men come in, say 30 or 40 of them and they come up to me and they say, hey, you. And that's how they confronted him. So now Jesus goes from this position and he sees them coming and they come to him and there they're they just are arguing. They want to fuss, they want to fight. Here's this woman. I don't know, this woman's probably half dressed. They caught her in the act. In order for that act to happen by the way there has to be a guy okay has to be a girl and they don't have to have no clothes on that's that's the act that's going on and so they bring her and i believe she's shameful she's crying she's her head's cast down she's probably partially clothed and they start talking and jesus just does this he goes back down did y'all catch that he went from sitting to standing takes his finger He stooped down, the Bible says, and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and he said to them, now he's on his feet again, right? He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Wow. And then he goes back down. (laughs) He stoops back down again. And he begins to write on the ground again. Then those who heard it. Now remember, there's lots of dynamics here. There's Jesus teaching. There's a crowd in the temple. There's a group that invades them. I'm thinking it's probably 30 or 40, and I'll explain that in a moment why. There's the scribes and the Pharisees, plural. And I think they have these young, aspiring theologians because it says, then those who heard it being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. The oldest even to the last. Not the general populace of people listening to him, but that religious group that had invaded Jesus' teaching. And now everybody leaves. Teaching's over, and Jesus is left alone, and the woman is standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw nobody, but the woman, he said to her, woman, this is so fascinating. (laughs) Of all that he could say, he chose to ask questions. He said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Number one, question number one. Question number two, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you either. Go now and sin no more. Now watch verse 12. I think verse 12 is very, very important. Then Jesus spoke to them again. Now, okay, this is interesting. It's like everybody's kind of faded out and, 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 and here's the, the focus here now. John puts the focus back on Jesus and the woman. It's almost like a camera, a movie. And everything just focuses, the, the people have left, at least those people who were there to antagonize and persecute and catch Jesus in some kind of trap, they've definitely disbanded. And now it's kind of like the populace kind of comes back in closer. And Jesus spoke to them and he said these words, "'I'm the light of the world. "'He who follows me will not walk in darkness.'" but have the light of life. Wow, what a text. Woo! What an amazing passage of scripture. All those variables, those salient features of the life of Jesus, loving people, tough on the religious crowd, obedient to the Father's will, loving everybody, all of that's manifested in this text. So what do you do with this text as a preacher? I've never preached on this text. I love studying and writing this sermon this week. And I feel like on Monday, the Lord gave me a, a different way to address this text than probably what I would normally do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what he did a lot. I'm gonna ask a lot of questions, okay? In fact, I'm gonna ask seven questions of this text. Now, some of these questions are gonna be answered like in 30 seconds. Believe it or not, I'm gonna preach a whole point in 30 seconds, maybe, something, somewhere in, in, in that time frame. But But there is one question that I'm gonna have to ask and spend a lot more time on, Because the text, I think, really behooves us to to grapple with with religiosity. And so I want to do that in a moment. First question I want to ask and answer is, who is she? Who is this woman? Nameless. She's somebody's daughter. She does have a name. She's made a mistake. She's made a big mistake. She has sinned. She has broken one of the, the 10 commandments of Judaism. Number seven says, thou shalt not commit what? Adultery. Now, adultery is the violation of the sacred marriage vow between one man and one woman. They are to be married for life. And when a third party enters into that relationship sexually, and then those people commit those Sins, then that breaks that covenant, that bond, that marriage, and, and 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 adultery is a horrific thing. Some of you here have committed adultery, some of you have been violated by the sin of adultery. It was a big deal, and I'm not minimizing it. I'm not mitigating it at all. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Who is she? She is a lady, a Jewish lady. She lives in Jerusalem. She has been caught in the act of adultery with some other guy, and now she has been brought to Jesus. Now, we know all that, but here's some things maybe we don't know. The shame, (laughs) the guilt, the hurt, the pain that she must have been experiencing. Now, some of you may want to jump on the bandwagon with the scribes and the Pharisees and say, well, she deserved it. She's violating the marriage vow. She is, buddy, she hadn't stole a piece of gum. She stole somebody's husband. And I'm with you on that. I, I know that that's wrong, but there's more to this than just wrong adultery. This is a human being. This is somebody's daughter, right? This is probably somebody's sister. This is somebody's wife. No, not very faithful. Or it could have been she's completely set up. I kind of believe that. There's a part of me that somebody seduced her and set her up through the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because remember, she is inconsequential. This whole passage of Scripture, it's not about her so much. It's about the religious people trying to trap Jesus Christ in some kind of theological trap so that they could have him executed. And so for them, she is inconsequential. She is just, a, she can just be thrown off into the trash heap of humanity. We don't know who she is. We don't care who she is. We really don't care what she's done. The real issue here is we're going to get to you, sir. We're going to get you. And if we have to use her, we will just use her. And that breaks my heart because this is a woman. This is a, this is a lady Created in the image of God. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of people have a stone in her in their hand, and they wanna they wanna pelt her. But there's only one person who has bread and life in his hand, and he wants to help her. Just last week, Ashley and I were watching a movie, and uh, I guess that's what empty nesters do: they watch movies. Mercy, it's no, you left us late, Danielle. Y'all got married. When I'm getting married, you know, and uh, and so we we watch try to find good movies, and we watched one the other night called Priceless. Um, uh, uh, the, for King and Country, Joel and Luke, the, the the band, and he's the main actor in this movie. Priceless is about sex trafficked women, and how he went after these two sisters and rescued them and redeemed them out of the sex trafficking industry. He, he he takes on this kinsman redeemer, this savior kind of character who goes in and helps those. Who can't help themselves. And by the way, let me just give a little advertisement, a little advertisement here. Uh, November the 25th is Thanksgiving Day. We've never done this before. We're gonna try, we're gonna have a Thanksgiving Turkey Day trot at Great Hills Baptist Church. No, not in here. We're gonna run out there. And we're working on it, we're working with the city, we're trying to get everything cleared with them. And we're going to run a 5K. Now, hold on, not, not everybody's gonna run. Some are gonna walk, some are gonna trot, some are gonna push the stroller, it doesn't matter. What we want you to do is we want you to come. See, this way you can, you can exercise, then you won't feel so bad about eating too much in, in a few minutes afterward, all right? So come, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the money, and all the money's raised, we're gonna give it to the refuge. The refuge is a ministry in Austin, Texas, that ministers to those who've been taken out of the sex trafficking industry. In Great Hills Baptist Church and in this community, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take up that money and we're gonna give it to them as they minister to people like this. Hurting, yes, make mistakes, but need a lot of grace. And, and thank you, Kyle Miller, bless him. He, Dr. Miller, excuse me. He's written a, he's written a whole... He's written his whole dissertation. His PhD dissertation is on this very subject matter. And we were talking about that just this morning. So question number one, who is she? Question number two, what did she do? Well, we know what she did, right? She committed adultery. And adultery, as I said a moment ago, is an egregious violation of God's laws, God's commandments, the marriage vow. It is wrong, it is egregious. In fact, it's so wrong that in Moses, Deuteronomy 23, you can read it, 23 and 24, the woman and the guy. You with me? It takes two, baby. It takes two. It takes two to do this, all right? And where is that rascal? We're gonna talk about that in a moment. But anyhow, she has committed adultery and and Deuteronomy 23, 24 says, take her, take him and stone him to death. That's what it says. And D.A. Carson, in his commentary, he, he points out, he says, this hardly ever happened in Judaism. It still happens in some Muslim countries for the offense of adultery. But there's little evidence that it was carried out very often in first century Palestine, especially in urban areas. But again, when you're talking about this, this scene, you got to keep in mind that they're not so much interested in, in this woman or, or even really in doing what they were looking at in the Old the, the thing they're trying to do is to catch Jesus and they think they've got him and here's why they think they have him because Moses said we are to stone them but they know if Jesus says that's right go ahead and stone them stone her Then Rome comes and says, who gave the order for capital punishment? They'll all say, well, he did. And so Jesus would be taken and he would be captured and he would be executed precisely what they wanted to happen. But if he says, well, no, we don't need to stone her. Oh, you heretic. Didn't you read the Bible? Didn't you read what it said? It said she's supposed to be stoned. How can you teach these people? You're deceiving these people. It's all a scam. It's all a sham. What they're trying to do is to catch Jesus in an aha, gotcha moment. But that's what she did. Question number three. I think question number three is, where's the guy? Is that right? Y'all bring it up? Yes, 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 where's the guy? Where is the guy? Where is he? Maybe he's fleet of foot and he ran. Or maybe he's employed by the religious leaders and it's all a sham. I don't know, but... I know he is as equally guilty as she is. Can I get an amen from that? It, it, he is equally guilty, culpable for this egregious crime against his wife and her against her husband. Okay, so we got that scene. Number four, why are some religious people so Mean. And we want to talk about that for a minute. Because in every epoch and era of Christianity, you, you always have these characters. You've got a loving Savior, you've got hurting, sinful people, and you've got religious people who are some of which can be very, very mean. So who are these people? Well, first of all, the Bible says it was a group of scribes and Pharisees. Now, the, the scribes would be, and D.A. Carson points this out, and I'll quote it. It says, these were recognized students and expositors of the law of Moses. But so central was the law in the life and the thought of first century Palestinian Jews that the scribes assumed something of a lawyer, a jurist, an ethicist, a theologian, and a catechist. All of this is subsumed under that title of a scribe. A scribe took on a weighty responsibility in first century Judaism. Not all, but most all of them were Pharisees, that elite group who believed in the law and in the 680-something ramifications of the law. And what they were intended to do was to nurture and care for the Jewish people. Watch this, church. They were to be the pastors of the synagogues. They were to be the experts of the law and they were to teach the law and nurture the people and help them in their relationship with God, always pointing them to the coming Messiah. But when the Messiah came, they didn't recognize him because their Judaism, their, their religion became more of a Pharisaism. It became more of a law-based. I mean, it became this judgmental law-based religion that if you violated... Just one iota of the law, they were there with the rod of God, they would spank you back into shape. That's called religion, all right? And religion kills. Religion stifles. When you've got people who think they're high and mighty and and better than you, and that's what they thought because they just, and they felt so threatened by Jesus. And Jesus comes with grace, and he comes with compassion and mercy. And there ain't no compassion, no mercy for the religious mean people. And so that's why they, and that's why they just, just, just clashed. Okay. And they were jealous of Jesus and and unchecked jealousy will eventuate into unbridled revenge. And that's, that's what we're seeing in this, in this text. I just want to say, please be careful of religious zealots who are more concerned with do's and don'ts and very little concerned with people. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, those of us in ministry or those of us deacons and leaders, and we've been doing this for so long, if we're not careful, we will begin to build our ivory towers thinking that we're better than the common lowlings of life, you know, because we're the scholars and we're the ones with the PhDs and we're the ones with the degrees and we're the ones with the seminary background and we're the ones that are just better than everybody else, you see. So we're just better than you. And so we can look down on you and we can rebuke you so that you get in line and you just do what we want you to do. God, heaven forbid that I ever become that person. I never want to become that person who says, well, I'm just better than you and, and you're just lowly and, 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 and I forget why God put me on this earth. And that is to love lost, hurting people. Oh, Jesus, help me never to forget that. I never want to become that person. I don't want you to become that person. I don't want you to become that person. Because that person is full of arrogance and pride, preference, and I'm better than you. We we got to flee from that with everything that is within us. Because here's what's at stake. This woman's life is at stake. They could just as soon kill her or throw her back in the bed. They don't care. And religiously mean people really don't care about people. They care about themselves and getting their way. And by the way, just a side note, if you stomp that really hard, it will hurt. I'm just, just letting you know. Time, let's do a TV timeout right here. Okay, good. So last week I was listening to a, to a podcast. It's a new it's new to me, uh, Dr. Josh McDowell's son, Sean McDowell. And he has a man on there by the name of William Havlicek. And Havlicek is a theologian, scholar, who's written a book on Vincent van Gogh, the famous uh, Impressionist artist or painter, better said. And so I'm listening to this, riding on this bike at the gym, and I've become mesmerized with Vincent van Gogh's life. And Many of you know about him or know his name, know that he committed suicide when he was 37. But what Havlicek points out in, in his book, and I've ordered it and I can't wait to, to read it, is that Vincent van Gogh in, in Europe, in, in, uh, in, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, he has a very definite salvation experience with Christ. You may not know this, but he was born again and he's very vocal outspoken in his new faith. So much so that Vincent van Gogh, you say, are you talking about the Starry Night guy? Is that the same guy who painted the Starry Night that's valued over a hundred million dollars in the Modern Museum of New York? That's him. And and I'll show it to you here in just a second. You see it? You say, well, I could do that and charge a lot less money, but (laughs) what's so fancy about that? Can y'all see the church? Look closely at the church. Deep into the heart of it, the starry night. I'm going to see it here in just a couple of weeks. Cannot wait. I'll probably be the guy, the curator, or whoever there. So you need to leave, sir. I'm just, I want to see this with my own eyes. He was a pastor. He loved his people. He was in a coal mining town. And the coal miners would work hard during the week, and they would come to church dressed pretty pretty casual, very casually. And not in impropriety. In in, in no. I mean, not any revealing cleavage or any way tight. No, no, these are just coal-mining men and women coming to church, and they dress like that. And Vincent van Gogh says, well, I'm gonna dress like that. And he did. And the religious leadership came to him and said, how dare you dress like that? And they rebuked him thoroughly. So he said, I quit. He quit the ministry. All over the fabric, the cotton, what we wear. Man, they lost a good one. He said, I'll just just go paint. Well, (laughs) that worked out pretty good for him. (laughs) He became an amazing painter, but he was fragile, y'all. And all these guys, pastor guys, going to ministry, young age, I know, I was one of them. Some of them come from some very difficult backgrounds, and and they're very fragile. And when you have harsh, mean, religious people rebuking him because if he didn't dress up nice, and he didn't live in a nicer home, they said, you make plenty of money. Why don't you live in a better place? He said, well, my people don't live there. I said, I'm just going to live kind of where they live, and I'm going to dress like they live. And they thoroughly scathingly rebuked him, and so he quit. Wow. Why, why are religious people so mean? Taylor Swift, why'd you have to be so mean? Mean. These people in this text, y'all, there's not a modicum of grace. There's not a residue of compassion. It's all about them. It's all about catching Jesus because he has threatened their religion. And it breaks my heart. Question number five, what did Jesus write on the ground? (laughs) You say, well, uh, nobody knows. Well, I got four ideas. and I'm gonna share these with you, okay? The first one is he began to write the sins of the people with the stones in their hands. He was just writing out their sins on the ground. You say you don't know that. Nope, but you don't know that he didn't. (laughs) You know, and then there are four of them. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you. Theory number two, and it's my that's the one I really believe happened. Some people he believes he's just doodling, some people believe I I believe he did this. (laughs) I believe he just drew a cross in the sand. He came from heaven to earth to show us the way. Other people believe he writes Jeremiah 17, 13. And this is a good argument because listen to the text. And Jesus knows the Old Testament. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So I asked a lady what she thought. She's on our staff. She's one of our ministers on staff, Jennifer. Not to mention any names, but Jennifer Wakefield. And she put a lot of thought in it. And I also asked my son, Layton, I just said, can can y'all give me your thoughts? I know they're deep thinkers. They love Jesus. They love the scripture. And and they wrote back, and, and Jennifer says, thank you for asking, but here's what I think he wrote. What a great answer. He's writing John 12, 47, which says, I did not come to judge the world but I come to save. I didn't come to judge. I came to save. What did he write? We don't know. But when you see him in heaven, you can ask him. Okay. Number six, what did Jesus say? We don't know what he wrote, but we sure do know what he says. Verse seven, he disarms the religious Pharisees and the scribes with one simple question, right? He who is without sin among you i go ahead. You go ahead and throw a stone at her first. And then you come on down, what did he say? It's in red, if you're still looking at it, verse 10, it says, woman, where are your accusers? Uh, number Question number three, really, has anybody condemned you? We don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. He asked questions and he's asking this lady, well, first of all, he's asking the religious mean people, go ahead. Would you like to throw a stone at her and obey Moses? Then go right ahead and do that as long as you've never sinned. Of course, they dropped their stones and they, and they left. Verse 11 is brilliant, classic, full of grace and truth. Here it is. I do not condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, this is classic Jesus. This is brilliance. He is saying what he said in Matthew 5.17, I don't think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't. He said I came to fulfill them. In the letter of the law, I've come to fulfill with grace. John 1 14, the Bible literally says Jesus is full of grace and truth. All right. There's a sweet balance there. And I know sometimes we tilt that balance as Christians. In grace, we become so grace based, we can become almost antinomian. And antinomianism was a, was a, a group within the early church where it says anti law, there's no law. No laws apply to us anymore. We can eat, drink, be merry, sleep with whoever we want to because Jesus has saved us. Uh huh. And so you see it, the grace meter, it's all the way over here. And so there's no law, we don't have to worry about any laws. But that's as equally fallacious as all law, and it's all determined on us and our works and keeping the law, and, and there's no grace. But Jesus is right in the middle. He's full of grace, he's full of truth. And Paul says in Ephesians four fifteen, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be full of grace and full of truth. And then verse 12, we know what he said about being the light of the world, and I wonder, when Jesus talks about walking in darkness, I wonder if he said this because they had just been given a beautiful example of what it means to walk in darkness. You walk in darkness when you, when you, you forget compassion, you forget what it's like to be an adulterer. You've been saved for so long, you, you've forgotten that you and I, we, we've broken many of God's laws and many of God's commandments. Jesus said, in fact, I tell you that if you even look at a woman and you lust after her, then you've committed adultery. Don't raise your hand, gentlemen. You ever done that? Hello? It's pretty, pretty deep, isn't it? But I, Jesus said, well, hold on just a second. I didn't come to destroy the law. I come to fulfill it, I come to elevate it to the point of the heart. Man, Jesus is bringing it. I'm the light of the world. Don't go in the way of darkness. Last question, and I'm done. What has this got to do with me? Will Jesus forgive me? And yes, he will. I remember, it's been a number of years ago, but I got on an airplane. I've shared this story once before at Great Hills, but I'll share it again. Some of you are asleep. Some of you don't remember it. (laughs) And many of you were not here. True story. I'm, I'm a professor teaching at a seminary, and I get on the plane Monday to go teach in another city, and... I have my notes with me and I'm preaching through the 10 commandments. I'm on commandment number seven and I've got all my notes out and I sit down. I like to sit by the window because I like to take a nap and I got all my notes out and I'm all excited. And, and this lady sits beside me and she looks over at me and she gets all kind of fidgety. I mean, you ever seen like, like somebody very, physically upset she is like I mean she just wants to run but she can't go nowhere I mean she's buckled in and she sits next to me we began to talk she said I just left my husband I'm going to meet my boyfriend in Atlanta and there you are teaching about do not commit adultery I said well ma'am this is either your lucky day or You're gonna continue on in your sin." And I got to share with her and share the gospel with her. And I I don't know what she did, but I do know where she was going. But you know what guys, Jesus loved her so much and he wanted to extend grace to her so much that he sat her beside a Baptist preacher preaching on the 10 commandments. (laughs) God's got a sense of humor and God has plenty of grace for you and for me. Some of you, very first step today Just take a step toward that grace, receive his grace. Some of you have committed adultery. Some of you have broken many of the laws and the commandments of God. Listen, I broke my fair share of them too. And and if I'm not careful, I can do one of two things. I can go further away from God and continue in sin, or I can go this way saying, I don't need Jesus. I'll just be good enough on my own. But all of these circuitous routes, it doesn't get us where we need. We just need to step right into Grace. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you, full of grace. But watch this, full of truth, stop doing that. (laughs) Stop, because it's only hurting you and your relationship with the Lord. It's only hurting other people. He's full of grace and truth. Your your step today could be stepping into the ocean of God's grace and splashing around. I wish you'd do it. I I want you to do it. Others of you, you, you know the Lord, you're walking with the Lord, and man, God... God's got plans for you. He he wants you to get involved and get busy and serve. And, And for some of you, that means coming to our church and getting into our Discover Great Hills new members class and finding out what your spiritual gift is, finding out what you're good at for God's kingdom. And let us help you and nurture you so that you step into God's grace and then you step into God's grace of helping other people. And that's where it really gets exciting. So God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it does speak to us. It really, really challenges us. God, please, I'm going to pray for myself first, if you would let me, Lord, please never, never, never let me be that person. That scribe or that Pharisee who's judgmental, who's political, he's harsh, he's critical, he's bitter, help me not to be that person. God, help me to be close to you. Help me, God, just always be reminded, Lord, of where I was When you found me, mercy, were it not for grace, where would I be? So, Lord, help me be close to you and help me love, love people, Lord, with grace and mercy and compassion. But also, Lord, help me speak truth. Help me speak to people that God is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. He is a God of wrath. And and he loves you. He wants you to turn. He wants you to believe in him and repent of your sins. God, help me to have that sweet balance of grace and truth. And help our church, Lord. Thank you for our church. God, thank you for the work of grace you're doing at Great Hills. Thank you, Lord, for the sending capacity of our church. Lord, help us to continue to send. And and then, Lord, you continue to send people to us that we can disciple and nurture and send them out. Jesus-loving people, grace-based, truth-filled kind of folk. And now, Lord, we just pray during this invitation, Holy Spirit, we talked to you earlier through song, and we do ask that you would have your way here in this this place. Lord, I pray that grace would abound. I pray, God, that truth would abound. I pray that as people stand to their feet, as we sing a song to you, that, God, we would enter into your presence in a way of commitment, in a way of sacrifice, in a way of saying, this is the way I'm walking in it. Lord, would you lead us now bless our counselors, bless our our pastors and our staff. Help us, Lord, to have wisdom as we speak truth, as we pray for one another now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love you, church family. You're awesome. Would you stand, please, to your feet? Stretch out just a minute. We're going to sing praise to the Lord. And if you're here today and you just say, I need a touch from God, I need a I, need a, I don't need no stone, Brother Daniel. I don't need a stone. I need some bread. I need some grace some mercy. Would you come? Could, could we say to you what Jesus said? We don't condemn you. But here, let's help you. Let's, just, let's leave that lifestyle. Go and sin no more. God bless you as you come. God bless you.